sorry I don't love you A fresh I've grown accustomed to Cause with you if something isn't wrong Something isn't wrong Something isn't right Hey everyone, you're listening to episode 70 of Welcome to Geekdom, and today I have on Keith Rawson to talk about his book Smoke City, but before we dive into that, I just quickly want to let you all know that today's show is brought to you by Grammarly, an intelligent writing app. You can download Grammarly's browser extension and create a free account at getgrammarly.com forward slash geekdompod. That link will be in our show notes, so no need to memorize it or write it down or anything. But right now, we are going to dive on in. Keith, how are you doing today? I am hanging in today. I'm doing pretty well. How about you? Same here. Same here. I <laughs> was pretty productive before jumping on Skype to record this. So it, oh, it's, it's been, nice. a, been a solid Wednesday here. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very nice here. And we uh, I have not been nearly as productive. So, <laughs> you know, enjoying the weather. Well, that's fine. That's acceptable, too. Sometimes you just have to do that. But today we're going to be talking all about your book, Smoke City, which was released this year on January 23rd. And if Mm -hmm. for some reason in the future someone is listening to this in a year that isn't 2018, it's 2018 right now, just FYI. Uh (laughs) So why don't you go ahead and just give a quick breakdown of what Smoke City is about? I've read it, so I obviously know, but I feel like you would do much better at giving a brief summary yeah it's a very odd book with a number of disparate elements um there's a guy named mike vale who is a kind of um down on his luck self-destructive ex-art star from the 1980s who is now just through various uh, bad choices uh broke and divorced and living um kind of hand to mouth uh he has just lost his job at a fast food restaurant and um, he hears that his ex-wife has died. And so he goes to Los Angeles as a kind of last redemptive act to go to her funeral. And he picks up a guy named uh, Marvin Dietz, who happens to be the remorseful reincarnation of Joan of Arc's executioner. And he is traveling to L.A. because he's just seen a, on a talk show a woman claiming to be Joan. So he's heading down there to go apologize and seek uh, forgiveness. And the third totally weird element is there are random ghostly apparitions that are appearing all throughout Southern California and Northern Mexico. No one really knows why they're there. So it's these kind of these two very ruined men uh, and a really weird road trip novel as they travel down to LA. Yeah, so to go back to the very beginnings of this book, I sort of want to start off with your writing process, because I know I previously had you on Misaligned, and we talked about your book, The Mercy of the Tide, and I'll link to Mm -hmm. that here as well, because that was another great conversation with you. So we'll be sure, (laughs) be sure to link to that. But with this book, it definitely has a much different feel to it. And I was just curious as to what your writing process was like with this book, because it takes on the form of a road trip, like you mentioned. So Mm -hmm. not only is the story moving along, but these people are literally moving from location to location. And I feel like that certainly gives the writing process a little bit of a different take, because 
that might make it a little harder to jump around and say like, okay, this is the end and this is the middle because it's like, if you're on a road trip, you have to get there in a specific right. order. You can't really just totally. jump around city to city or something like that. So how did you start with this book? Did you outline? Did you just have this idea and start rolling with it? Yeah, that's, um, this book was really, uh, a process of, um, that whole process of trying to get people from point A to point B, it, it uh, grudgingly became a road trip novel. Like when I first started it, uh, Marvin Dietz, the incarnation of Joan of Arc, was not in the book at all. And it was just Mike Vale. And he had these, these uh, two children, like these ghosts that were kind of following him around and uh, kind of serving as his like guardian angel sort of creatures and they were like super goth and like uh you know really depressive and um it was a totally different book and that's just really how i write is i just like i got probably 30 or forty thousand words into that book with just mike Vale as a main character and it just wasn't going anywhere you know and so then i read a uh biography of joan um called joan of arc her story by regine pernot and in it, um, the character of this uh, executioner was mentioned. And so then that sort of gave the story, adding this character um, gave a uh, added volume to it. And then you have these two great characters that you love, but it's like, you got to get them somewhere, you know? And so I had to come up with an impetus for them to get on the move. So it's a totally different book than Smoke City is. And it's, um, but it's also in its way, like a very much a classic trope, like it's, it's a really effed up version of like a buddy, you know, road novel. So it was a totally different process, though, with a lot of uh, false starts. Yeah. And how did you settle on just the idea of a road trip in the first place, too? Was it crucial to both of these characters that they have this journey together? And did that sort of affect the outcome of the book, I guess you could say, because had they stayed up in Oregon and sort of tried to go through this thing together instead of needing to go down to LA, maybe they just, you know, had to go to a different city in Oregon or something. I feel like right. that outcome would have been drastically different. Yeah. it's And I think a lot of it too is it was just this, like this notion of as having been on a number of like shitty punk tours, you know, I am fully aware that like you're my truest like self and comfortable or not comes out when I'm in, when I'm traveling and when I'm like in uh, uncomfortable situations, you know, it's like there are moments of like profound discomfort or profound grace and stuff like that. And so I just had to get these guys like out of their elements, you know, and there has to be, and in every novel there has to be something at stake. And so I had to, um, get it so that both of these guys had things to lose and things to gain by getting out of town. So, and part of me is just like, I wanted to play with that, that trope of the road novel, you know? Absolutely. You mentioned Marvin being a reincarnation basically. So one of the next things I want to really dive into is the character development because you have Mike and Marvin, who are drastically different people. And then you even have Casper thrown in the mix along the right. way because he just sort of hides in the van and ends uh -huh. up on this road trip with him. And even though he's not necessarily 
a character you focus heavily on just because of, you know, how polarizing Marvin and Mike are individually and even when they're together. How did you come up with these characters and what made you want to have someone who was a reincarnation, basically? You know, you actually, you touched on something that not a lot of people have, like, really picked up on, and that's that Casper was very much like a uh, a salve in a lot of ways. Because both these dudes, Mike and Marvin, are, like, pretty ruined in a lot of ways. And mm-hmm. um, pretty just, like, bleak, you know? And so Casper wasn't exactly, like, um, you know, the funny man or whatever, but he did serve, like... Uh, he offered a little brevity, you know, and I think like if you don't want like 330 pages of just straight dire ruination, you gotta have <laughs> you gotta have it like go loose a little bit and have a little fun. And so that's Casper. That was kind of what Casper was. But he also provides a really big um, pivotal plot element at the end of the book. Like he's an important character in that way. But I don't know. Like like I said, I read that book. Joan of Arc, her story, and in it, there's this anecdote that survived throughout history that they kind of retell. And this guy, this executioner, uh, Jeffrey Thera, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing these French names right. I really <laughs> hope I am. Uh, this executioner was apparently heard uh, and seen all throughout in all the taverns uh, after the morning uh, lighting of Joan's pyre and her, you know, her murder. And he was super drunk and crying in all these bars saying that he had seen her soul leave her body uh, in the shape of a dove through the smoke. And he was convinced that he had damned himself to hell for murdering a saint. So when I read that, I was just like, how do you not write about that guy? You know? So then after that, it was just like really a lot of studying about medieval life in that time period and found a lot of fascinating things about executioners and the kind of like social pariahs that they were at the time like beyond executions they did a lot of necessary stuff like disposing of like dead animals in farms and like uh people who have died in prison like they disposed of the bodies but they're also like considered unholy and unclean you know so like as i learned more i like it just became a more and more fascinating uh character for me and so incorporating that sense of uh, loss and, and, and his guilt over Joan in a modern day character. It was just like, I love challenges like that, you know? Yeah. And it's really interesting to me because if you, you know, ignore pronunciations of his last name and everything, it literally just spells out the rage and he's <laughs> right. an executioner and it's just so fitting. And yeah. then, you know, you really start to get to know Marvin and you're like, this doesn't really seem like who he is remotely anymore. And, you know, he basically knows exactly when he's supposed to die and, you know, be reincarnated again. And then to get through him telling this story of his history and everything like that and have that not happen at the end Mm -hmm. of the book and have him get this chance to continue enjoying what he's doing even though for a long time in the book he was not having very enjoyable moments but it's one of those things where he's sort of finally at peace by the end of the book and I think that's really crucial to the progression his character has throughout the whole story yeah setting up those parameters of the curse was like 
that was part of uh, the challenge of crafting a story where there's something at risk, you know? And so it's like, uh, he is reincarnated like over and over and over again with all of the knowledge of his past lives. And he'll be somehow uh, physically disfigured by the time he's a child and then he'll die sometimes in infancy, sometimes when he's 10 or 20 or 30, and but never to uh, making it to the point of death of his actual first life at 57. Um, so knowing all that, you know, it's like, it's, it's really just a spin on the whole, like reincarnation is wonderful, you know, like for this guy, he's, he's been blessed or whatever with life over and over again, but it's actually been like pretty horrible and he's, and he's kind of squandered it in a lot of horrible ways. Um, and to me, that's just like, again, that notion of risk and of like all my stuff in some degrees about shame and, guilt and then redemption, you know, so it's really just a continuation of those ideas. Exactly. One thing I did notice, too, is that when you put characters in a confined space, like a van and on a road trip, <laughs> they really uh -huh. never get to escape each other. Sure, you know, they stop at motels and have separate rooms and whatnot. But really, for the majority of this trip, the three men are stuck with each other because they pick up Casper fairly early on. And, right. you know, even though it's a van and, you know, it's probably more spacious than being packed into a Prius or something like uh -huh, that, yeah. you know, it's just one of those things where those characters probably get to know each other so intensely so quickly that mm -hmm. when they spend time apart in L.A., you know, Mike goes his own way and then Marvin and Casper are doing their thing looking for the woman who claims she's Joan, you sort of get this little breather and the characters get this little breather too and i think that's what helps everything come together so nicely in the end as well yeah and again that was really like it's easily say that was the toughest part to write was those like scenes of them traveling yeah because you can't just you can't just write like page after page of like and then they flip the tape over or <laughs> to the radio station you know so there's got to be like this engagement and it's a great opportunity to um have them like learn about each other and have character uh progression but god it's just like they're just sitting there you know what yeah. I mean? <laughs> so yeah that was the challenge it's certainly a good opportunity to have them tell stories about each other because then mm -hmm. that's really how you get to know these characters as the reader and how the characters get to know each other at the same time because really if you're in a car with someone that long it's not like you're going to sit in silence the whole time and listen to music sure you could do that but it would probably be very awkward by the time you got out of the car and you were yeah. like so that just happened <laughs> right right yeah and so that was really just the uh just the challenge of like towing the line between uh, not having 50 pages of pontification as they're going down 101, but also like, how can we use this to advance the narrative a little bit, you know, and to maybe have them like get in, you know, like Mike is pretty antagonistic to both of them. And so like, that was some pretty fun stuff to write. Um, but then, yeah, you got to get them out of the car and uh, have them. And again, it's to me, it's very similar to those, you know, those few like tours that I've done. Where it's just like you're just so grateful to like get the hell out and away from people, you know, and to just uh, do your own thing for a little while. 
Right. And at the beginning of the book, we learn that Marvin owns a record store. And Mm -hmm. music is something that you've certainly incorporated into your novels here and there. And I certainly wasn't expecting it to be a huge influence on this book or anything like that. But just getting those little tidbits of, you know, hey, this guy owned a record store that almost immediately tells you something about his character in this life that he's living because it takes a very specific person to run a record store I feel like especially mm-hmm. in you know the current day and everything because there aren't too terribly many of them left right and it was such a funny thing that like you know you think of people being reincarnated and like the best way to like hoard their riches from one life to the next and this guy like buys a bunch of jazz records and then stores them for his next life, you know? It's just like, man, not exactly the most, like, uh, intelligent economic decision, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it certainly tells you a lot about the character without really needing to dive into the details because it's just one of those things where it's like, okay, he listens to jazz music. That tells me, you know, quite a bit about him already. And Right. But he's also got, like, a dead punk section. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. I just couldn't like. I swear, every like every book, there will probably be some nod to punk in it. You know, it's just it's fun for those in the know to get it. Like I had a guy. There's like a a, a Crimp Shrine reference in The Mercy of the Tide, my first book, and someone that book's been out a year, and someone just mentioned it to me like a week ago, and it was like, yes, all right, you found it. <laughs> yeah. Before we move on here, though. It, in a sense, the smokes are sort of characters because they come in the form of different people and everything like that. So what led to the inspiration behind creating the smokes? And just so everyone is clear on that, you know, on the back of the book here, you have them listed as ghostly apparitions that have inexplicably begun appearing throughout the southwestern U.S. So really, they have centralized themselves in southern california which of course is where these guys are traveling to so what led to you creating these and then even later having marvin be able to communicate with them yeah well um that is a i I keep thinking i'm like oh my god deanna can you put in your podcast contain spoilers because we've spoiled the hell out of this yeah Yeah, so I think what part of it was, again, that book started out with those two kids, um, the the kind of ghostly guardian children. And so I had this idea of ghosts already. And like, you know, with like the mercy of the tide, there's like a monster in it and there's alternate history and yada yada. It's just like, after growing up on like Stephen King and comic books and shit, I just can't write straight literary fiction, you know? Like, I want to, I think I'm this literary author, but it's like, I also got to put ghosts in there, you know, and monsters and stuff. So it's just like, uh, it's really just a case of like wanting to, um, again, have a traditional trope, like a road novel, but like just jamming weird shit in there. You know, that's the type of stuff that I love to read. And it's the type of stuff that I love to write. Plus, you already have reincarnation in it. So it's like at well, that point, you not, can, right? yeah. yeah, you can really sort of get away with anything. And what I like about this book is that it doesn't stick to one 
total theme necessarily. You have these, you know, historical elements and sci-fi elements, and you sort of have this mashup of genres in the book. So, you know, it's sort of hard to just call it anything other than fiction. Like, it's not necessarily science fiction totally, but, you know, it, it's just, you know, a really fun fiction book to read, especially because of how the smokes and all of these characters have been developed. Yeah, I think it, it's just like, a, I mean, I'd like to call it magical realism, you know, because um, it's just this like very crazy, fantastic elements that are just accepted. You know what I mean? Like that is the way the world is. And it's like, I don't know what we would do. Like if, if these apparitions started appearing right now, the stock market, we would still have a stock market. You know what I mean? We would still have like uh, people would still have to go to jobs. Like for better or worse, it's it's just um, me trying to imagine like uh, how things would actually go if you know ghosts randomly like nonviolent, non-participatory ghosts appeared. What would we do? You know, and it's like eventually in this book, investigations get funneled down to the CDC because no one really knows what the hell to do. You know, um, and it seems like a very like accurate governmental sort of thing that they usually like, I don't know, CDC, <laughs> you take it, you know? Right. Well, I do want to dive into the plot a little more, but before we do that, I just want to let the listeners know a little more about Grammarly. So for you, the listeners of Welcome to Geekdom, Grammarly is offering a free download of their software. And basically what Grammarly does is it allows you to check your grammar, spelling, and everything like that right in your web browser. And they do this with AI-powered products, which help you communicate more effectively. So you can use it on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, basically anything where you are typing on the web, you can use this. And you can go and download Grammarly today at getgrammarly.com forward slash geekdompod. Again, that's getgrammarly.com forward slash geekdompod. But like I said, it'll be in the show notes, so you don't have to worry about memorizing it or writing it down. And that will give you a free download. And it's a quick, easy way to support the podcast. And, you know, since we are talking about a book that Keith wrote, you know, Grammarly is a perfect fit for this episode as well. But now we are going to dive into the book a little more. Like Keith said, we've already spoiled it. So, you know, if you've listened this far, you know, hopefully if you haven't read the book, you don't mind the spoilers and you are going to go buy a copy of the book, which we'll have a link to in the show notes as well, of course. But for the plot of this, really what's going on here is these two guys have a purpose for being in L.A., Mike is going to his ex-wife's funeral and Marvin hears about this lady claiming she's the Joan of Arc and he wants to go find her and figure out if this is true because he has all of these memories of her and, you know, he's a reincarnation, so why can't someone else be? And you have, yeah. you have quite a bit of dark humor in this as well. And, you know, Casper certainly lightens the mood, but there's still those moments like when Marvin finds out that this girl was just playing a trick for TV and lying mm -hmm. about being the Joan of Arc and everything like that. And it's a funny moment, but you feel so bad for Marvin at the same time. So what led you to go with the decision to not make 
her actually be Joan of Arc and not sort of have him get that redemptive ending. Instead, he gets a different one. The book is really one of the the like underlying messages to me. It's just this like trying to manipulate or uh, mold life the way we want to. It, it just rarely plans works out the way we want it to, you know? And so, so he just tries and tries and he bucks against fate to like do this. Um, and it doesn't work out this, he's bet all of his chips on this, this woman being Joan and he will be forgiven. And then after like four or 500 years or whatever, he will be finally forgiven and that his life will change. And then it doesn't happen that way, you know? And it's like, I, the stakes have never been, you know, that high for me or for you, but I bet we've certainly felt that way before, you know, like just banking on something so hard. And then it just, you thought it was a sure thing and it just falls to shit, you know? Right. And so that's like a very universal thing, I think. But then ultimately, um, even that serves as a catalyst for what happens to him after that, you know? And so it's just like, like life just happens to us, whether we want it to or not, you know, hardly ever the way that we plan that it will but it still like chugs along, you know? Definitely. And with Casper, he's this character who doesn't really have a plan at all. He's just Mm -hmm. so stoked to be going to LA with these two random guys (laughs) hiding in a van. (laughs) And for him, you know, he doesn't, exactly have a direct plot line he doesn't have a purpose for being in LA he's really sort of just this free willed traveler I guess you could say and to have him still find this path while he's in LA and with Marvin and you know they end up working on the TV show together which is Mm -hmm. something we have yet to discuss too it's just a refreshing moment to have this character where you really feel like anything could happen with him. He could, you know, fall into a rut still, or he could mm-hmm. do what he did and, you know, make it with the TV show and everything like that. But he certainly had a much different approach than Mike and Marvin did. And I think that made his character a lot more interesting too, because he didn't yeah. just end up not doing anything, which certainly would have been more boring than the outcome that you wrote (laughs) right yeah for just a bit of context to listeners like he he is pretty like fly by night like they uh he inadvertently gets a free ride by these guys um and readers will figure that out you know (laughs) it happens um and then his whole idea is just like i'm just gonna go to la to make a, a film a show about these these apparitions and that's it. Like he has no film experience. His gear has been stolen from him, you know, but he's got that like youthful, like, uh, confidence. Uh, and so he just adds like that, again, that element of like, I'm just going to give it a shot. What's, you know, what's the worst that could happen. So yeah, he was again, like, um, a nice break, uh, from the other two characters, like ceaseless, uh bleakness you know so even though he is with marvin the entire time too or most Mm -hmm. of the time i should say and he is sort of that he's almost like a voice of reason to marvin especially when you know they go to the studio lot looking for joan of arc and he's like well what if we do this or you know it's not the end of the world (laughs) and so he has a much more positive outlook which really helps 
in contrast to Mike and Marvin's not so positive outlook. Yeah. When the other thing is that when he, uh, when Marvin tells him about his past lives and everything, like this guy just accepts it willingly, you know, because he's like, well, Christ, there are like ghosts floating around. Like I'd say everything is up for grabs at this point, you know? So, um, and I think that again, just adds to his character of just like, oh, I will accept what comes my way, you know? Right. And to turn things back to Mike a bit here, because we haven't talked about him too terribly much in the bigger picture of things. We mentioned that he's going to LA for his ex-wife's funeral. And that whole thing is a really sad story, but it's something that he really needs to go through because, you know, back home, he's been struggling. People won't buy his paintings or they won't buy them for nearly as much as they were, which was probably an outrageous amount for her painting to begin with. But Mm -hmm. it's one of those things where he needs to go through this sort of epiphany to get himself back on track because he is the character who is probably in the biggest rut when Mm -hmm. the book starts. And you can really tell that if he doesn't do something, everything's just going to go downhill from there. So even though he has this tragedy happen with his ex-wife's passing, and, you know, it's clear he still cares for her and everything like that. But this tragedy is what really sort of gets him in gear to turn things around and realize, okay, you know, I'm still here. Things aren't that bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can, you know, like people ask, like, are you your characters or whatever? And, and hopefully no, but at the same time, like I can relate to, you know, being like, uh, in a rut and like maybe, you know, making a series of, of bad choices and, um, also being seemingly incapable of just making a number of small life changes. Like with Mike, it's got to be this fucking massive life altering thing. Like he's got to abandon everything and go down to LA when he can't be like, I'm going to take a week off drinking and see if I can do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's got to be this big, massive thing. Uh, and I can totally relate to that. You know, that idea that like, if you have to change your life, it has to be like huge and like this your hair is blowing back with the power of it, you know, when it's just like, dude, you could just try like, you know, some like better health choices, man. (laughs) So instead of baby steps for him, it's more all or nothing. He either has to do this and go big with it, or he's just not going to ever get out of this rut that he's in. And that's certainly how that certainly shows how different people are wired because with martin he's like okay let me go see if this woman is who she says she is and then we'll go from there it's not like he had this whole like elaborate thing planned out he was just like all right well we'll go see who this person is and if she really is joan of arc which you know when she isn't then he's like oh crap what do i do and luckily yeah luckily he has this connection with the smokes that he can use to his advantage especially since people are clamoring over these things on social media and everything like that you know it's this big thing on the internet and for someone like marvin he's kind of like what's the internet almost (laughs) and so he really has to pick up on a lot of things very quickly to ultimately end up doing this TV thing. And I think Casper helps a lot with that too, because, you know, he's the younger guy in the group and more energetic and he's just like ready to take on anything. Totally. You got it. Yeah. 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 
Well, is there anything else plot wise that you want to discuss? Otherwise, I just have a couple things I want to hit on before we wrap this up. You know, that's a good question. No, I really, uh, I really feel like um, you nailed it. Like, I really appreciate the opportunity for sure. It's one of those things where sometimes the podcast lets me think about things longer than I would when I, you know, read a book and write a review. So now I'm probably going to go look back at my review and be like, well, I missed all of these things that I just mentioned in the podcast. So, you know, it's good to have, you know, multiple outlets for things sometimes. But one thing I did notice with this book, too, is you designed the cover yourself. And that's something I just want to touch on briefly because... Like I mentioned, you came on Misaligned before and we had discussed that book and some of your design work. So what was your, I guess, inspiration behind this book cover? Because it's fairly ambiguous, but at the same time, it still really tells you a lot about (laughs) sort of what to expect from Smoke City. Yeah, you know, it was really cool that um, my publisher so far has um, been super supportive of me doing my own book covers and like I do graphic design and illustration for bands. And so it's a huge treat to have like creative control over your own thing that you've invested, you know, years in. And so honestly that cover, like that cover illustration, uh, both my, uh, publisher and I were both like, yeah, when we saw that sketch out of like, I came up with like probably 25 different cover concepts. And then I tried to revamp uh, and do a, a nicer illustration of that weeping executioner that's on the cover. And it just looked like too polished and, and uh, like just didn't work nearly as well. And so that, that illustration is actually just about a, I don't know, maybe two by three inch. Um, or that's the original two by three inch sketch that I just blew up from the original cover concept. And I just love shit like that. Right. And then obviously you added sort of the little texture over the whole image there digitally, right? Yeah, I, I uh, scanned it in and, and messed around with it in Photoshop and added that like uh, kind of off color, off center registration that like old comic books have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So just little details like that. But it's originally just a um, super frenzy, quick uh, sketch, maybe two by three inches. That certainly fits in with the theme of the book. It's like, okay, quick decision. Here we go. And we're doing it. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're on the road, you don't really have too much time to lollygag and make decisions because, you know, I haven't done quite that long of a road trip, but just driving up and down California, it's like, okay, where do we want to eat? Oh, well, we already passed that place too late. (laughs) Exactly. Yep. Totally. Yeah. So now that we've wrapped up our conversation about Smoke City, really, I just want to see if you can tell the listeners what you're working on next. Do you have any other books in progress right now, or are you sort of keeping things close to the vest? Um, You know, I've actually uh, got a couple illustration design things, like some new split seven inches and stuff that I'm doing as far as art and illustration goes. And as far as a book goes, um, I am right now in the process of like uh doing edits with my uh agent as far as like he's like okay you sent me this book here's what i think needs to be changed and i'm like no this part's great (laughs) you're right that part totally needs to be changed so hopefully within like a month or so or who knows how long maybe a couple months um he's going to be able to start shopping that around the publishers so and that is a about a uh, cryptozoologist who might um, 
have been sent a video of a unicorn um, on the uh, off of a small island uh, that's been entirely made up by me off of the coast of Iceland. So again, more weird, fantastic shit. Well, I can tell you right now, my mom probably already pre-ordered the book before it's even available because she loves go. unicorns. So, yep. you know, you, you you definitely have at least one sale already. So <laughs> already a success there. There you go. I mean, but who knows if it'll actually, you know, like my my ghosts and, and stuff are never like particularly. I'm just saying, warn your mother. It might not be an awesome unicorn. Who knows? Fair enough. She listens to this, so she's been warned now. So we're okay, we're good. good deal. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned doing design work for some bands right now. Have you ever thought about doing book designs for other people? Because I'm sure there are people who just make a full time job out of that as designers for like, you know, HarperCollins or Penguin Random House or something like that. So is that something you're keeping for your personal work no. right now? I mean, that would be like, uh, that would be a dream. Like I will occasionally get a lead, um, to like a design department within a, um, a publisher or, uh, like something like that. I will immediately fire off, uh, emails to them. So it's just, it's more a question of being asked and like trying to have things line up to where that's something that outside parties are interested in me doing. Cause I would love to do it. It's a blast. Yeah, it definitely looks like that you've certainly had fun with the book designs that you've done for yourself too. So that's always yeah. something that I find interesting because, you know, I've taught myself some design stuff here and there, but I'm always like, but how do people get theirs to look like this? <laughs> and, <laughs> right. You know, it's like one of those things where I'm like, it's going to take a very long time to do this. And I know a lot of my friends who do design work and everything, you know, they went to school for it and I am not about to go to school again for a graphic totally. design major because I already majored in music industry, which gets enough questions as it does, right, right. as it yeah, is. Totally. So it's just yeah. one of those things where are you self-taught or was this something you learned how to do specifically and then you sort of just branched out from there into writing and everything like that? Yeah, it's really like I'm an art school dropout uh, and I um, uh, don't have a degree or anything like that. Um, so the whole thing like with um, writing, like people with MFAs, like I kind of look at them like uh, awe-inspiring, almost unicorn-like things themselves, like these mythical creatures with MFAs. <laughs> you know? And it's so rad. Uh, and I... I uh, it's like an experience that I can't quite um, imagine, but I'm sure it's also something that people who have done it have been like, yeah, I mean, it sucked in a lot of ways, but I'm so glad I did it, you know? So, um, yeah, I haven't gone to school for any of this stuff. It's really just been um, self-taught for the most part. That's awesome. I feel like yeah. sometimes that's really the best way to go too, because there, you know, there are certain things that are very helpful to learn in college <laughs> and, yeah. you know, with, the music industry being a literal business, it's like, okay, you should probably know some basic business things to get through right, this. Right. And with writing, it's like you can literally just sit down and do it. Mm -hmm. You can't necessarily yeah. just sit down and make business happen, not knowing anything right. going into it. And it's sort of the same with design because there is, you know, a bigger learning curve because you have software like Photoshop or Illustrator or even third party places that aren't adobe now and yep. 
it's certainly one of those things where you definitely have to be very focused to do it, but school might not necessarily be quite your thing. Right. And that's, that's also one of the things that I love about writing so much is like you said, design and illustration, you got to have like, you know, a, a decent computer and like a, a scanner or whatever. And like your hands-on tactile materials, like your pen and your paper and, you know, your inks and all that stuff. Uh, and with writing, it's really just like, you can have a shitty laptop, you know, uh, and you're free. Like you can do whatever you need to do. And to me, that is like a really uh, powerful, uh, freeing thing. But it's just you and your mind in this white screen, you know? Yeah. And there's a lower barrier to entry too, because, you know, Photoshop and Illustrator cost a good amount of money, even though, Mm -hmm. you know, now you can get them as a subscription service. But with writing, you can literally start with a pencil and paper, which those items are significantly less expensive than a laptop, even if the laptop's something like a Chromebook or something like that. Yeah, right. And it's like uh, learning the tricks of Photoshop and all that stuff, like it can be really daunting and it's not like particularly intuitive in a lot of ways. It's really not. (laughs) Yeah. Where I think like with writing, if you write every day, you will like, you will get better. Like that's the end result, you know, you'll just get better. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you can say quite, I mean, you can say the same for drawing for sure. But then when you hit this kind of technological uh, merging, it's not quite the same. Yeah, sometimes I've had pop-ups come up in Photoshop and I'm like, I don't know what that means, so okay. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And it doesn't delete anything, so I'm like, all right, I guess it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you, Keith, so much for coming on to talk about Smoke City. And, you know, if you ever have anything else you want to geek out about, I am here. I'm available. You are always welcome on the podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much, Deanna. Of course. And to our listeners, as always, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.